0: You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. And I'll read the text that we're going to look at today. But I want to begin with uh, verse 1 of chapter 3 because I want to keep the context so we understand what Paul has reacted to here. Verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware the dogs, beware the evil workers, beware the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, These things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word that you have given to us, your children. We ask, Father, this morning that you would illuminate to us your word, and as we examine this text, I pray, Lord, that you would not only help us to apprehend what we are examining in this passage of Paul's epistle, but we ask, Father, that you would work these truths in our lives in a way that would bring honor to your name. We just give you thanks now and pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Several theologians, as I began to examine this text, I was a bit taken back by some of the responses and some of the commentators that I have studied for this passage. Here's one comment by John MacArthur. He says that this passage that we look at is one of the greatest testimonies in the New Testament. It is also a testimony of the working of God in a person's life, which leads one to repentance and belief, thus receiving salvation by grace of God. Acts, that's end quote. In Acts chapter 9, we see the historical account of Paul's dramatic conversion. I'd just like to read that. You don't have to turn with me. But I'd like to read the account of Paul's conversion. Chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest And asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard the voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why... Are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Now, that miraculous account of Paul's conversion totally transform Paul as he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. As we continue in this text, we see that Paul was challenging the error that the Judaizers were trying to perpetrate on the believing Philippians. They were trying to combine ceremonial practices and saying that, yes, you can be saved, through Jesus Christ, but you also have to be circumcised. Paul attacked this heretical teaching just as he did in the book of Galatians. So as we look at this text, the focus is to emphasize to the saints the importance of understanding the true nature of working out our salvation. We know it's by grace we're saved through faith, and it is God's work from justification to glorification. And this is Paul's endeavor, is to teach these Philippians how to live and their life as Christians and to glorify God in doing so. <clears throat> Paul is giving us an example of his own life, of putting confidence in the flesh. If anyone could point to the accomplishments that they accomplished on their own, thinking that he was doing it for God, it was Paul. And we begin with this. <clears throat> in Philippians 4.6. Um, excuse me. Although I myself, verse 4, might have confidence even in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day. Now, why does Paul begin with that? Well, we're going to address that as we go through this. Paul is saying here that the works of the flesh could save no one. It is strictly a work of grace through faith and this is the whole essence of this passage. Many people, even Protestants today, think that somehow by practicing uh, being baptized or attending church regularly or some of the particulars of practice in the Christian faith and yet have never come to a place of repentance and salvation in Christ. They think that these works of service or offerings or somehow through their participation in a church somehow grants them favor with God. It does not. <clears throat> Remember in verse 2, Paul said in this <coughs> chapter, Paul said the Judaizers, he referred to them as dogs and false circumcision. Then he went on to, in verse three, to define Christians as the true circumcision. The Jews could argue that the Philippians, being mostly Gentiles, didn't understand the rich heritage of Judaism. But Paul was an exemplary Jew, uh, probably far more than the Judaizers had ever attained in the flesh. He wrote this to the Galatians in chapter 1, verse 14. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries and among my countrymen, bringing the extreme zealousness for my ancestral traditions. The Pharisees and the Judaizers and the Jews who were practicing Judaism were zealots at times, and that's the essence and the mindset of the Pharisee. They considered themselves and they were actually looked upon as the religious leaders of their day and yet didn't have the true knowledge of Christ and Him crucified. So what were the qualifications of Paul that he listed here? Among them he says this, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, when Paul speaks about the flesh here, he's talking about the unredeemed portion of our lives. He carried out in his own strength works that he thought were pleasing to God. And by his efforts, he was trying to attain forgiveness and right standing with God in his practices he begins with this in verse 3 through 5 for we are the true circumcision who worship in spirit in the spirit of God and glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh although I myself might have confidence in the flesh if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh I far more Now some look at this and think, was Paul boasting here? Was he trying to lift himself up above other men? No, he wasn't. He was trying to emphasize just to these Judaizers and to the saints at Philippi that they could not put any confidence in the flesh. And if they were to, they're to look at his track record. What was his track record? Pretty impressive for works of the flesh. Circumcised on the eighth day. Now, this was part of the practice being circumcised on the eighth day. That was the Levitical law, or the Mosaic law. Paul had already written to the church in Rome, and in chapter 2, he said this about circumcision. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And this praise is not from men, but from God. When he was circumcised on the eighth day after his birth in Confirmed as a Jew, he was of Jewish lineage. His descendants were Jews, and they followed Jewish ritual. Paul includes circumcision in the most essential rite of Judaism. He counts that as spiritual loss. It didn't help him in the slightest, but one who puts confidence in some act or work. Or effort on their behalf of themselves has not understood salvation. <clears throat> Paul's declaration that he was of the nation of Israel has the idea that some of the Judaizers were Gentile converts to Judaism. But Paul was of the tribe of Israel but he was he was not of the tribe of Israel but the tribe of Benjamin so what is that how why is that significant that's quite significant to the followers of Judaism because being of the tribe of Gen, uh, Benjamin was the most prominent of the tribes of Israel let's think about what the history is here he was Of the last of Benjamin was last of Jacob's sons born uh, in the promised land and when the kingdom split after Solomon's death only Benjamin and Judah remained loyal to David's teachings when the Civil War came that divided Judah from Israel and after the death of Solomon The tribe of Benjamin was one of the outstanding tribes, and they followed God's revealed religion at that time. In Leviticus, Leviticus it says, the sacrifices were to be offered only at the great altar in Jerusalem. The tribe of Benjamin resisted the aspect of some of the, the northern tribe to go to other places to offer sacrifices, yet the tribe of Benjamin stayed true to the practices of Israel before the split, and those that were proclaimed in the Old Testament. Benjamin resisted that, and he was of a pride ancestry. Mordecai was used by God along with Esther to save the Jews from genocide. He was also from the tribe of Benjamin. Thus, the tribe of Benjamin is one of the most noble in Israel. Many Jews no longer knew that the tribe they belonged to. They had no idea, and yet Paul knew what his lineage was. Very few could trace themselves back to a specific tribe or from the essence of the children of Jacob. Very few. But Paul did. He knew that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul's family had remained pure Benjaminites. So this characteristic of Paul elevated him above some of the Judaizers. Thus, Paul's privileged status as a Benjamite had nothing to do with his salvation. So as he looks at these assets, and he considers these things from an asset to a deficit, he's going to use accounting terms. The next thing, he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So what is that? The three, the first of the characteristics of Paul's qualifications that he inherited, he was inherited from his parents. All those things that he listed prior. But the last four are the achievements that Paul himself had attained. So, as he gives us this phrase, a Hebrew of Hebrews, means that he grew up in a family of traditions of Jewish heritage, He was born in Tarsus, a city in Asia Minor, not in Israel, but unlike many Jews, uh, the Hellenized Jew was one that simulated into the Greco-Roman culture, and yet he left Tarsus for Jerusalem to study under the famous rabbi, well, some people refer to him as Gamaliel. Paul said in Acts 26:4, So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. Paul was devoted to his Jewish, uh, Jewish heritage, and yet he saw the glory in Christ and was saved. As to the law, a Pharisee. Paul was so zealous for the law, he became a Pharisee. To the Sanhedrin, Paul declared, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, son of Pharisees. In Acts 26, 5, Paul testified, I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. To become a Pharisee was to reach the highest legalistic Judaism and they were devoted to the law, including the Old Testament traditions. They memorized the Pentateuch, that is, the first five books of the Bible, and yet they followed tradition more than the concern of obeying God's law. That is, Jewish traditions. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church... Further evidence of Paul's zeal from his Jewish heritage, and he confessed that he had been a persecutor of the church, the Jews viewed zeal as a supreme religious virtue. The more zealous you were, the more religious you were. The more zeal you showed against the church, the more that showed defense of the true people of God. But Paul recognized that as a deficit, and he recognized it as a misguided cause for Christ. We can see the intensity of the persecution of the church and read of the account of Stephan, the first martyr. Paul began ravaging the church and entering house after house and all men and women and put them in prison. That was in Acts Eight, three. In Acts 9.1, Paul went to the high priest and asked for the letters to take to the synagogue at Damascus. Of course, I read that text, and that's where Paul was converted. In 1 Corinthians 15.9, he said this, For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. Later in life, he confessed to Timothy, he said this, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. That was in First 1 Timothy 1.13. So Paul considered himself the least of the saints and the chief of sinners. Why? Because he persecuted God's people. He did so, however, as he acknowledged, as an unbeliever. And yet he considered those heinous acts of persecuting the church and bringing some of them to martyrdom and participating in that as the chief of sinners. He knew he was forgiven, and yet he never considered himself prominent in any way. His heart was that of a repentant and... True believer. As to the righteous of the law, excuse me, found blameless, he conformed outwardly before his conversion to a form of righteousness, which was in the law. Again, Paul uses the law in a broad sense of the Dru- Jewish tradition as well as the Levitical law. He kept that blamelessly. Now that doesn't mean that he was without sin, and yet there was no outward sign of Paul doing anything in violation of the law or the traditions. So he was preeminent amongst the Pharisees. Paul was to the people he knew a model Jew. He was not, however, like Zacharias and Elizabeth, who were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. That's what Christ said in, or Luke said in 1 6 of his gospel. But things which were counted to me as gain, these things I counted as loss for Christ's sake. Probably the most important word in this text. Is the word but. When Paul met Christ on the road to Damascus, he saw who he was and what God's righteousness was, and that his was his filthy rags. He was convicted as a proud, arrogant man who thought he was serving God, doing all he could to actually destroy the body of Christ, and the work of the early Christian church. This list that he gave, he recognized all of it, was as filthy rags before God. He had nothing that he had accomplished in the flesh that was going to bring any form of righteousness before God. When we think about the comparison of Romans to the epistle to, of James, uh, many have throughout the church history being, been confused over the two books. Say, uh, even going back to Martin Luther, the first reformer, he thought he referred to James as a strawy epistle because he, at first, had misunderstood what James was proclaiming. Faith without works is dead, dead faith, and what what he meant by that is true faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ, produces in the heart of the believer good works. It has nothing to do with attaining salvation, it's only a reflection of salvation. Romans said the same thing, and yet many have confused and been misunderstood the work of God's grace in the believer for true salvation. <clears throat> Paul's experience on the road to Damascus, in which he met Christ, occurred about 30 years before he penned the epistle to the Philippians. And we see in this text that he calls Jesus Christ his Lord. He was Lord and Savior to Paul. He served him, once converted, with all his heart. Paul's life and strength uh, was a rewarder of his Redeemer and his anointed savior. savior. Quoting Psalms 73, verse 25, Who am I in heaven but thee? And there is no one on earth that I a desire besides thee. Paul continues, For whom I suffered the loss of all things. What's he mean by that? When we consider salvation and compare it to anything that we've done in our life, past, present, or even future, salvation through Jesus Christ is what Paul thought about. All those works, all those works carried out in his flesh prior to salvation, he considered them as loss. Now, in... A text he uses the word he counted as refuge. Now refuge is from the word as Cornell vividly described in one of his teachings, is from the word scubaon. It means garbage, refuse or manure or waste. It's used also in Luke thirteen eight, the same but it's a different verb tense. But here Paul is referring to his works as nothing better than refuse. He considered everything he had done worthless, and for good reason, because now he understood the true essence of God's grace and mercy. That's why he was so adamant against these Judaizers, people who were trying to bring works into the aspect of salvation. That was heinous to Paul, and he attacked it vehemently because it was false teaching. But now he talks about the surpassing value of knowing Christ. This refers to something of incomparable worth. The knowing in this text is from the Greek word or ver- in the verb form of gnosis which means to know (coughs) experientially that it it was a personal understanding of who Christ was. He knew Christ, just as those who are regenerated know Christ. It's an intimate knowledge of who Christ is and what he has done, and faith in him. So that's the word that Paul uses in this text. So many Christians today... Or professing Christians today know about him. They know that Christ was God. They know that he came to earth and was incarnate, lived a sinless life, suffered and died, and rose again on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father. They know all that uh, academically and some have made profession to Christ they may have walked up the aisle at some time or they may have raised their hand in some kind of a evangelistic outreach or they may have made a profession after somebody has shared the gospel with them but the true essence of our faith is witnessed in our lives, and in our heart by the Holy Spirit. When God reaches the heart of a sinner and brings him the grace and the faith to believe, the regeneration transforms. You no longer think the same things. You no longer have the same value. You no longer consider God as you did in your former life. Some of them blasphemy in thought, but were transformed. That's exactly what Paul felt. Only the depth of his understanding grew. And the more he grew in the knowledge of Christ, the more he was convicted of his sin. And that's true of every believer. You grow in Christ, you become more sensitive to God's word you have greater conviction from god's word and yet you understand the greatness of god's grace and forgiveness that's what paul did only to the degree that many have never came to paul lived his very life he didn't care for me to live as christ to die as gain either way he served christ that's the life of paul He stressed that early on in this epistle, and he lived that in his life as a Christian serving God. But now he talks about the surpassing value of knowing Christ. This is something of incomparable worth, and Paul understood it. So many Christians, as I said, claim they know Christ, but yet in John 17, verse 3, Christ defined eternal life as knowing him. This is eternal life, that they may know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. As we consider those words, we recognize throughout the entire New Testament In the Gospels, in all the epistles, they bring forth forth with clarity the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, primarily in the epistles, it gives us a greater and deeper understanding of what salvation represents in the life of the Christian. And how that is lived out. This is what Paul was wanting to emphasize. The Greeks often sought an elevated state of their deity. In the second century, a dangerous, very dangerous heresy called Gnosticism was introduced. And that is where they tried to merge Christian truth with Greek teaching. And these beliefs in Gnosticism were that they could attain a higher level and transcend most of human understanding of spiritual things. They thought somehow that they could attain a special level of spiritual discernment and understanding. But Paul, he truly understand what the knowledge of Christ is by his personal conversion. As we look at verse 9, Paul says this, And I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. This is the essence of the gospel. As we consider this, We'll examine this more closely as we have opportunity next time we open. But I want to emphasize how Paul here brings it to this place that he is found in Christ. He has repeated that phrase numerous times throughout his epistles. That is, he was truly converted, he was truly regenerated, and he knew of God in him, producing that which is true and righteous deeds. He was submitted now. Paul did many righteous deeds after conversion, but he always gave glory to Christ. And that's what good works should do by anybody. Bring focus on who is producing that and who is to get the glory for that. Paul rightly understood that. And then he's going to emphasize in this next portion of this epistle that this is God's work. Let's, uh, before we close, I just hope that uh, we have a deeper understanding of what it is to live our salvation, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We have to understand that it's God that is at work in us. Both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It isn't our fleshly works that can produce nothing. But when we focus and turn to God and allow him by his grace to work in and through us, it produces good works. We will desire to be around other believers. Will we desire and have a passion for the souls of the lost? and present the gospel when God gives opportunity. We will desire to do all things for Christ, that he may get the glory, not us. It is his work from beginning to end, and may he get the glory. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that has been imparted to your children. And Father, we thank you that you love this enough to reach us as sinners and to provide the way of salvation, to grant us the gift of salvation, we give you praise. We ask now that you would be continued to be lifted up through the proclamation of your word and as well as our songs and hymns. May they be a sweet aroma to you and may you once again get all the glory.